So we are in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9. We're going to finish off this chapter today. We got through verse 24 last week, so we'll start off in verse 25 and read through the end. So Hebrews 9, verses 25 through 28. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thus sends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it be eagerly awaiting the arrival of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In a, a letter that he wrote to F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway described what would be his idea of heaven. These are the words that, that he wrote to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Listen to this. To me, heaven would be a big bullring with me holding two Barrera seats and a trout stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in. <laughs> and two lovely houses in town one where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well, and the other where I'd have my nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. That's man's idea of heaven. Last week we spoke a great deal about blood, if you remember about how it is a reminder to us that, that our world is not well. That ever since the fall, our world has been broken. And that because of our sins, we deserve death. And because of our sins, we need a mediator, a substitute who will, who will stand in our place. Someone who will offer his life freely in our stead. And we saw that that it is this Jesus Christ who is that substitute. This is what we read last week. But let, let's remind ourselves. Look again at, at verses 23 and 24 from the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, it was, it was Jesus who went into heaven itself, into the, that heavenly tabernacle, into the throne room of God, where, where, where he brought the blood of a better sacrifice, where he brought his own blood. And this blood, if you remember, it has the power to cleanse. It has the power to purify. 
for, for this sacrifice. It, it, it was a, a, a true life for a life offering. An offering that can take away our guilt. An offering that can, that can bring to us real forgiveness. And that, my friends, is good news, is it not? But now this week, our author begins a new argument. A new argument concerning Christ's sacrifice, but with a focus on how effective and, and lasting that that sacrifice truly is. And in particular, the, the four verses that, that we're looking at today is really just the beginning of that greater argument. An argument that will take us all the way into chapter 10, all the way to verse 18. But today I want us to, to solely focus on this first part of the argument. Because it, it addresses topics that we as a so-called civilized society like to avoid. And, and those topics are our own death and the judgment of God. We don't like to think about those things, do we? we? We like to put them in the closet, shut the door, and go our own way. But we're going to address them today. Look at, look at our first two verses. Look at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now we've talked about this before, how, how the high priests of old would have to go into that most holy place, to, to that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, every year, once a year, on a single day, on the Day of Atonement. And the reason he would have to go each and every year was to cover over the sins of the people. And yet, as soon as that priest was finished, as soon as he stepped out from that inner chamber, a new season of sinning would begin. Another lie would be told. Another man would lash out in anger. Another woman would become jealous and the list would go on and on until once again you had a whole nation filled with guilty people. And so this whole process would have to be repeated. Another bull would have to be slaughtered. Another goat would have to be killed. And the cycle of death would continue. But not so with Christ. Not so with our new high priest. For Jesus has broken the cycle. And he has broken it with his blood. Because the blood that he offers is a better sacrifice. It is a better blood. And this is the argument that our author wants to make. That, that the sacrifice that Jesus made is better than those sacrifices of old. And the reason it is better is because it is lasting. In fact, it is everlasting. What does our author say? He, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared once. And so this wasn't an, an every year thing. 
that this wasn't something that needed to be repeated. It just needed to happen a single time. And we'll talk about talk more about why that was when we get into chapter 10. But, but for today, just realize that, that Christ's sacrifice of himself only need, needed to happen one time. One time in order to put away sin. And it's not just for one person, is it? What does it say? But for the sin of all. This means that his death upon the cross was sufficient to cover the sins of any who repent and trust in him. Any who, who turn from their sins and have saving faith in this Jesus Christ. Yes, by the blood of this one man, he is able to cover a multitude of sins. And it has the power to cover your sins. And then there's one more detail in this verse that I want you to notice. And that is the timing of when this occurred. What, what does our author say? That this one-time sacrifice, this, this one-time event happened at the end of the ages. Now, now this phrase, the end of the ages, is often a term that gets confused and misinterpreted by, by many modern-day Christians. For, for how we typically read this is, is that the end of the ages means the end of the world. That it means the second coming or that final day of judgment. But, but I believe that this verse gives us a strong argument against such a, re a reading. For, for if this phrase is talking about the end of the world, then we have to put the cross of Christ right there. Might I suggest that when you see this phrase in your Bibles, this phrase, the end of the age or the end of the ages, that, that it's not talking about the end of the world, but rather it's talking about the end of something else. What did Christ end when he went to the cross? What, what has this whole book of Hebrews been about? The end of that old covenant and the beginning of a new covenant. The, the, the end of God dealing with, with, with his people under the stipulations of the law, under those temple sacrifices that had to be repeated, and the beginning of God dealing with his people under the commandment of grace and forgiveness, under his mercy that was brought about by one sacrifice, one sacrifice that put away sin forever. And that is what is meant by the end of the ages. That that Old Testament era was passing away. And, and that the New Testament era was beginning. And that's why we see this distinction. Between those sacrifices of old and, and the sacrifice of Christ. For in the, in the old age, the sacrifices were never enough. So they had to be repeated again and again. But in this new age, in, in the age of Christ and his sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus only had to die once. And it is because of this one-time sacrifice that our author makes a comparison. Look, look, look at verses 27 and 28. Look at what he says. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once 
to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In many ways, these two verses were thrown in here in order to give a clear comparison. Just as a man dies once, so too Jesus as a man only needed to die once. But our author, you know, he, he, he's trying to state the obvious, right? You live, you die, and then you are judged. I mean, this is not only the basic belief of the Christian, but this is also what was the basic belief of your typical Jew at that time. And because our author's original audience were Jewish converts to the Christian faith, this, this quick comparison really didn't need any fleshing out. It, it didn't need any further explanation. And yet in the world that we currently live, this is not as obvious as it should be. In fact, these two categories, death and judgment, we, we like to ignore them, right? We like to distort them, even. But last week, we, we, we talked about how in the West, we like to sanitize everything. Right? How, 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 and how this sanitization has hidden from our eyes a reality of suffering and death in our fallen world. And to be honest, I, I think we like it that way. For, for we have become a people who, who we, we don't want to dwell upon death. And we particularly don't want to dwell upon our own deaths. How many of you go around every day thinking about, oh, I wonder what my deaths are going to be like? Think about the, the mass hysteria that came about because of COVID. I mean, when it first hit, we as a society went to extreme, extreme measures in order to keep everyone safe. Measures that were detrimental to how our society functions. But why did we do this? Because we are a people who have become gripped with fear. The fear of dying. And we have become so accustomed to not having to deal with death that, that when it was shoved in our face, we panicked. And when people are panicked, they will pretty much do anything to protect themselves. And this is why you saw all the shutdowns that you did. And, and why you saw all those mandates. It is, it's why you saw the extreme divisiveness over these matters. And, and today, we are still feeling the, the effects of this panic. And yet, COVID or no COVID, death is unavoidable, is it not? And deep down, we all know this. We all know that, that our time is limited on this earth. And that is why we try to extend our lives as long as we can. And not just extend our lives, but we try to make our lives as comfortable and as enjoyable as we possibly can. And so we live for our best life now. And we'll fight tooth and nail to maintain it. But why do people do this? Why and why are people so afraid of death? I think it's because 
we as a society as a whole have adopted a, a naturalistic worldview. What do I mean by this? I, I mean that we have bought into the religion of science and human reason. That, 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 that we believe that, that everything can be explained away by, by natural laws. And, and, and we, we've come to, to terms that, that supernatural things do not exist, particularly God. Now, now listen to me closely. Naturalism, it, it, it isn't the denial of death. Rather, it is the embrace of it. It is a concession that there will come a day when your body will cease to function and then there will be nothing else. That's it. It will be over. You as a person will cease to exist and there's no hope. That, my friends, is naturalism. And because of this thought, because of this Worldview, people feel that, that, that this one life is all they have. And they'll say they need to embrace it. They need to clutch onto it tightly. But in order to do so, they need to hide away death and not, not talk about it. Because beyond this life, there is no hope. You see, while, while naturalism... It, while it doesn't deny death, it doesn't want to look at it either. But what it does deny is judgment. And the reason it denies judgment is because it denies God. It, it denies that there, there is anything else a, after a person's heart stops beating. It, it denies that there is anything else beyond the grave. No God, no judgment, and no hope. And when there is no hope, what that ultimately leads to is this culture of death. Let me explain. If this life is all there is, if there is nothing more than what you see right now, then what are you going to pursue? You're going to pursue comfort and pleasure right now. And in this pursuit of having your best life now, you, you, you will stoop to whatever is necessary in order to obtain it. You may even go so far as to seek out the death of others so long as it will achieve your end goal, that goal of living the good life. What is, what is the, the big debate in politics right now? It's over abortion, right? Why, why is this debate so pre prevalent in our nation? Why is it even a debate? I mean, how can we be even having this discussion? It's because people want to have all that they can in this life. And so they, they, they justify the murder of babies in order to get what they want. They, they devalue the life of the one in favor of the life of the other. And they'll, they'll rationalize it away by making the argument that to, to, keep the, to keep the baby will destroy two lives. right? But if you get rid of the one, then, then there's hope for the other. And that's why they use the terminology that they do as well. 
words such as fetus, words such as pro-choice, because they want to fool themselves into thinking that, that they're not murderers, that, that they have not embraced death, when in reality that's exactly what they've done. You see, by, by putting all of their hopes and having their best life now, they, they have bought into the culture of death. But they do this because they think that this life is all there is and that there will be no judgment, that their sins won't follow them. But even though they don't believe that there will be a judgment, they still have this, this deep need for justice, particularly justice for themselves, justice for their lives, for the lives that they, they want to pursue. But, but they need their justice to be swift and fast, do they not? Because remember, they, they only have one lifetime to get things right. But since they don't look to God to provide them justice, they look to the, the highest authority that they know, which in our society is the government, right? This is why they worship at the altar of their political party. It is why when an election doesn't go their way, it, they see it as a sign of impending doom. That it's the beginning of the end. Because they need justice now. For this life is all that they have. Now I'm not just talking about the Democratic Party. There are plenty of Republicans as well. Who are just as devoted to the religion of their politics. And that's the reason I'm saying all this. Because we as Christians, we can fall into the same type of thinking. We, too, can want that good life now. We, we want our party to win elections, right? Because we think that God is, not, is somehow not in control. We, we, we put our hope in a candidate rather than our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we pursue worldly goals instead of his mission of spreading the gospel. In many ways, we too have become naturalists. And yet, what do we read in these two little verses? It's something vastly different, is it not? For, for it is a message that tells us that, that death is not the end. It, it is a message that tells us that, that there will come a day of perfect justice. It is a message that delivers a hope. A hope that goes beyond the here and now. And yet it is a message that seems out of touch with today's world. You see, the, the Christian concept of death and judgment is different. It, it says that it is appointed for a man to die once. And in this, our, our, our naturalistic friends would agree. And yet, instead of ignoring death, God wants the Christian to ponder. He, he wants us to consider our own mortality and, and why it is that death must come. And then he wants us to ask the question, what comes next? And this leads to the second point where, where we disagree with our naturalistic friends. And that is on this topic of justice. 
You see, the, the, the Christian worldview is in disagreement on how justice is satisfied. The Christian worldview is in disagreement on the timing of justice. The Christian worldview is in disagreement on the consequences of our actions. Because the Christian worldview is in disagreement on who has authority over our lives. Listen, there, there are no do-overs. There, there are no take-backs. What, whatever good or evil you have committed cannot be erased, not even by death. And, and, and that's because there is a God. And he demands justice. And it is, and it is this judgment that, that the naturalist doesn't want to hear about. For if death is not final, then that means that they were living for a lie. That for, for they were living for their best life now. And, and they were living for that false sense of justice. A, a justice motivated by the wisdom of men and not by the wisdom of God. By what they thought would bring to them a fulfilling life. And yet, if death is not the end, then their worldview crumbles. For if death is not the end, then, then they are not their own judge. For if death is not the end, then there is someone who is higher. Someone to whom they must give an account. And this is what the Christian faith teaches. That God is our judge. And that in his timing, he will bring about his own day of judgment. And it won't matter if, if you thought you were doing right by your own standards. For your standards will mean nothing in the presence of, of the one who is truly holy. Look at, look at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Dear friends, do you understand that there will come a day when you will stand before the throne of God and your whole life will be laid bare? Nothing will be hidden. All will be exposed. All those lies that you told, all those hurtful words that you spoke, all those lustful thoughts, all those acts of selfishness, they will all be there on display. And all those worldly things that you chased after. All of those things that you thought that, that would give you your best life now. 
they will not be able to save you. Rather, they will condemn you. And do you understand that, that the wrongs that you have done, they, they do not get erased by the passage of time. Do you realize that, that the, the sins that you have committed won't go away through your own attempts of doing good? That these things remain on God's ledger until justice can finally be fulfilled. And so he, even if you lived a million more lives, and, and in each of those lives you were simply doing good deeds the whole time, it would still not erase even a single sin. And do you understand that no matter how many sins you have committed, and no matter how, how, how wicked your sins were, were, that the greatest sin, the greatest atrocity that you will have committed will be your rejection of your God. It, it will be your denial of Him. For, for even though He has spoken and has revealed Himself to you, you did not desire Him. Rather, you desired to live your own life the way that you wanted to. And thus you have bought into the, the naturalist lie that this life is all there is. And there is nothing more. And yet it is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes judgment. I mean, these are the words that we don't like to hear. Am I right? These are the words that we want to suppress. For deep down, we, we know that we are full of sin. And that we stand condemned. We stand guilty. We stand judged. And yet, and yet, for those who believe in this Jesus, there is hope. What does the end of our passage say? Look at verse 28 one more time. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. You see, we often think about judgment in a negative sense. And I've practically preached a whole sermon now about judgment in a negative sense. But remember, our author is writing to believers. He's writing to those who have been justified. Justified through that once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Their sins were borne away. And thus, at this second coming, at this coming judgment, it will be a positive thing. Because they have repentant faith in their King. And the verdict that will be spoken will be innocent. It will be not guilty. And why will, will, will they receive that verdict? Not because of anything they did, but because of what Christ did for them. Because of that once for all sacrifice. Listen, there will come a day when Christ will return. 
The dead will be raised and they will be brought before the judgment seat of God. And those books that we read about in the, in the book of Revelation, they will be opened. The ledger will be read. And if you don't have Jesus, then you will be found guilty and left wanting. But if you do have Jesus, if you have repentant faith in him, that he is the son of God, your Messiah, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and that he rose from the dead three days later and is now ruling at the right hand of his father. If you believe this message, then when he returns, there will be another book that is opened. And it is the Lamb's book of life. And King Jesus, he will have written in that book your name. And so when he comes, he comes to save you. He comes so that you will be declared innocent. And that's why this judgment is good news. And that's why you should be eagerly waiting for him. Think about the, think about the words of one Ernest Hemingway. How, how did he describe his version of heaven? Front row seats and a bullfight? A private stream for fishing? A house with a faithful family, where, where somehow he's faithful too. And another house for his concubines? Like, how does that work? Doesn't that version of heaven sound like the very things that our naturalistic friends want right now? You see, Hemingway wanted heaven to be all about him. I hate to break to you. Heaven is not all about you. The real heaven has nothing to do with your sinful wants and desires. No. Rather, it is a place where God becomes our new desire. Where Jesus Christ becomes the one who we, whom we truly want. Where fellowship with him is the highlight. And if this seems dull to you, then... If this somehow seems boring, perhaps you don't know your God as well as you should. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Do you desire him? Or are you living for the good life, for your best life now? Turn away from, from your worldly desires and turn towards Christ. For death will come, and then comes judgment. But only through Jesus will you find a better death. Only through Jesus will you find a better judgment. For he truly is your treasure. And only he can satisfy your deepest longings. Let us pray. Father. We come to you now as a people who have no business coming before you. We confess that all too often we 
We live for this life and not for the next. We live for our own desires and not for what you desire. And so we ask that you would help us. Help us to repent. Help us to, to understand that, that this life, it is so short. And that death is destined to come to each and every one of us. And turn our hearts. Turn our hearts towards heavenly things. Turn our eyes towards your Son. Towards the one who went to the cross and died in our place. As he became that once for all sacrifice. May he be the one whom we eagerly wait for. May he be our heart's desire. We can only do this if you change us from within. We need your Holy Spirit. May he fill our lives as he prepares us for that better judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name.